Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 126 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 126, Scott and I are going to... Well, actually, I'm going to start by giving a third age quizzing news update. But after that, we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about three kind of interrelated topics, sort of. The first is uh, we're going to be talking about... A concept that Scott came up with, and I love this concept, it's the, the notion of the byproduct of objective rules. Uh, and this is inspired by his recent viewing of this game called Soccer, which I find incredibly boring, uh, but apparently he doesn't. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And then we are going to talk about brainstorming some ideas for engaging the audience, spectators, viewers, whatever you want to call them uh, in Bible quizzing. And then we are going to circle back to something that we talked about a couple of episodes ago, the appeal aperture of quizzing, uh, because uh, sh uh, show listener Luke from CM CMD emailed us and we love responding to listener uh, emails. So we want to talk about that a little bit. So before we dive into those three topics, I want to give a third age uh, update, third age quizzing update. So it seems crazy, but like in the last couple of weeks, a whole lot of stuff has happened uh, with regard to bringing about the third age of quizzing. And it's really exciting and terrifying at the same time. So in no particular order, uh, one of the things I've done is I've called and formed an operational task force to work through various sub uh, projects related to bringing about the third age of quizzing. And really the first thing that we're going to be doing to bring that out is hosting, rendering and hosting the first international third age Bible quiz meet. And so that's what we're focusing on. We're focusing on it uh, happening in July. Uh, and this group that I'm working with, I'm calling it this ta the operational task force is uh, it's just amazing there. The level of energy, interest and commitment these, that these folks have is phenomenal, which is really great because it means I don't have to do everything. Uh, which is really, really great because there's a whole lot of stuff to do. And even though I'm doing a, a minority percentage of it now, given that there's this task force, I'm still pretty saturated with everything that has to happen uh, and the time commitments to be able to uh, get it done. It's I'm not complaining. It's very exciting. It's very cool. I'm just super grateful that um, the the task force is there to, to shepherd some of the load. Um, so one of the things, actually the thing that we are hyper-focused on right now is rendering and hosting the very first international third age quiz meet. So this, we are calling it the International Open Championship or IOC, and it is going to be in July. And we knew it was going to be in July for a while. We were thinking it was going to be like the first half of July, but we're not, we weren't really sure exactly when and where. We've narrowed it down to a much smaller window. It is going to be three days between July 10th and July 16th. Um, so that, whatever that is, the second week, second full week of July, um, it will likely, those three days, we're not exactly sure where on that week those three days are gonna be. It's probably gonna be the early part of the week, either Monday, Tuesday, 
Wednesday or maybe uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that kind of thing. We're not exactly sure, but that's kind of the, that's the general consensus of where we're going to be targeting the, the, um, the date and the location is TBD, but it is going to be in the Puget Sound region somewhere. We're looking at a bunch of different locales. We're looking at Seattle Pacific University over in Seattle. We're looking at uh, Northwestern University or Northwest University in uh, Kirkland. Uh, we're looking at Kitsap uh, Convention Center over in Bremerton and a, and a handful of other locations within the greater Puget Sound region for hosting, but it will be somewhere there. So it's going to be three days, somewhere that second week, second full week of July, somewhere in Puget Sound. And it's going to be huge, uh, so which is both terrifying and awesome at the same time. So I've been, as I, I think I've mentioned on this program, actually, I'm pretty sure I have mentioned on the pod before uh, that I've been in contact, regular contact with uh, leadership in both the Nazarene quizzing program and the Free Methodist quizzing program and other programs as well. But those two in particular, I've had ongoing conversations with, and we had a... Um, a really fantastic get together, well, virtual get together on Saturday for a couple hours, uh, just talking through all kinds of stuff. And they have, uh, they've always been very positive and supportive of the third age concepts and ideas. But uh, the folks uh, on the call uh, said that they are, uh, you know, we talked through some of the stuff that we're going to be doing for IOC. They're both, both programs are very interested in sending teams, said that they would send teams. And the current estimate is that we are looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 17, 17, 17 teams across these two programs that are going to be sending to IOC. So that alone makes it a pretty interesting meet. But of course, then we're talking about uh, the program uh, folks from PNW are going to be there. Plus we're going to be trying to go, you know, internationally U S and Canada to try to invite uh, other folks as well. So this, this could become, it already is a big quiz meet, but this could become really, really big very, very quickly. So we've got uh, some possible new districts and new teams forming that the, that are going to be forming over the next couple of months. And their intent is to participate in IOC as their very first quiz meet, uh, which is going to be interesting from a comp competitional perspective we're going to definitely want to be you know probably separating into maybe a senior bracket and a junior bracket or something pretty quickly we'll we'll see how that works based on some of the logistics that we need to tackle but ultimately that's exciting because we're fulfilling this mission of growing quizzing getting new programs new districts new teams formed and getting them participated so one uh group uh again all of this is preliminary it's not written in stone but uh one group uh, may be forming out of the willamette valley in uh, oregon which is exciting and another group from the central valley of california i've talked about that group before and uh, other groups that we're also talking with around the country, uh, both in U.S. and Canada. Mostly, most of our conversations right now have been in the U.S., but we're going to be trying to broach more into Canada here in the coming weeks uh, to invite uh, more and more people to consider participating. We're in dialogue with leaders from all sorts of other programs right now, including World and IFCA. Um, there's a pretty decent chance we should we we could get at least one or two teams from world to be able to be able to participate which would be fantastic um but these are all sort of ongoing so if 
you are part of an organization that I have not explicitly mentioned by name, uh, maybe talk to your leadership and see if uh, it, there may be a possibility that you could uh, come to the meet. So the meet itself is, you know, named appropriately. It is the International Open Championships for this third age of uh, Bible quizzing. And I want to stress, you know, two words here, international, obviously, you know, Anyway, we, we say, you know, U.S. and Canada, that makes it, it's two countries, therefore it makes it international. But if you happen to be from a country even further away, uh, feel free to consider this an invitation to you as well. Uh, but it's an open uh, championship. So anyone who wants to sign up, register, attend, you are allowed to do so, encouraged uh, to do so. Although you can't do it yet. Um, so registration isn't open yet just because there isn't a way to make that work. The infrastructure isn't there yet. Uh, if you want to, you can email the show and I will keep your contact information and I can reply to you when that registration system is available. So if you want to email the show, it is iq at cbqz.org. The registration system is probably going to be open in January, possibly as late as February, but that's sort of the the kind of the time frame. It's definitely not going to be open uh, this year before the end of the year. So that's just sort of the update there. So that is coming um, rapidly, although July seems a long ways away. The, the, the days and weeks and months between now and July are going to fly by fast. So that is oncoming. Okay, so the next thing is the rule book. Um, obviously, we need to have a rule book and we need to have a rule book um, yesterday. Um, I am working feverishly on it. The goal is to have it published in beta form or alpha form, I don't know, some sort of test form by Christmas. And yeah, that's, you know, less than two weeks away. Uh, so I am, like I said, I'm working feverishly on it. It's going to be published out to GitHub and it's going to be maintained on GitHub. So it'll be public and open and all the various, you know, rainbows and butterflies and unicorns and so forth. So that's going to happen. I'm, I'm, my, my intent is to have that done prior to Christmas. Now it might be Christmas Eve at 11 o'clock at night, but <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to get it done at least uh, by Christmas. Then our intent and our plan at this point is we, we're going to be playtesting this system in January, probably the middle of January. We may even try to do some playtesting before that, but we'll see how things go. But there's definitely going to be some playtesting of this beta, alpha beta form of the rulebook. So what gets published by Christmas is not necessarily what we're going to be competing on in July. Uh, so it'll be pretty close, right? It'll be, let's call it a 90% plus, uh, maybe even higher than that. But ultimately we're going to, we're going to play test the thing, try to poke holes in it, try to find problems with it, and then look at going from a beta form to a V1 sometime before the end of January. So at the very latest, now it could be that we play test it. And by middle of January, we feel comfortable with whatever kind of adjustments we want on some of the dials. And then we say, okay, great. This is what it's going to be. But sometime either between the middle of January and the end of January, we're going to uh, publish the official final version, which will be the rule book that we use uh, for the IOC meet in July. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned for that. 
The other thing that we're, I mean, there's a, a whole bunch of other projects that the uh, task force is working on, and uh, I don't want to necessarily talk through every single one of these things. The task force is doing some really awesome work. Uh, but another major project that, that uh, the task force is working on is we are working on a new push button trigger light set. Uh, so the goal of this is to get quizzing equipment costs from, you know, I've seen, you know, good sets are anywhere between 400, 500. I've even seen $600 sets or, or more, but the goal is to get quizzing equipment costs from $400 us down to $50 roughly. That's our target. Um, we want to be able to target building of these trigger sets to be $50 and we want to, have how we did it be public um so and and open so the idea is um we design the system we we figure out parts list where to order stuff from how to put it all together we write up instructions and all of that gets published so that anybody who wants to can either buy one for 50 bucks or whatever or they can just build it themselves. Uh, and then it also, because the design is open, the sch schematic is open, people can use that to innovate and they can figure out um, if they want to make improvements on the design or if they want to fork it or if they want to try to integrate it with something, that's all going to be available. And the uh, exciting news is the very first prototype, the operational prototype of this new trigger light set went live last night. Um, so it's um, scary and terrifying and awesome all at the same time. So that is what is going on. If you have any questions about any of this stuff, in particular, if you're interested at all in participating in the International Open Championship, um, like I said, registration will probably open sometime in January, but it would be great if you emailed us ahead of time to let us know, hey, we're, we're thinking about maybe participating. That helps us get a gauge for facility-wise in terms of like how big of a facility we need. Now, obviously, we know we need a really big facility because the meet already is going to be very large, um, which is awesome. Uh, but if it's even larger than large, uh, the sooner we know about that, the better. So, um, yeah, let us know if you're at all interested. All right. So with all that said, let's dive into our first topic, uh, the byproduct of an objective rule. So, Scott, do you want to introduce this and kind of talk about the inspiration of it and some examples and we can kind of riff off that? Yeah. So we've long talked about objective rules, subjective rules, which are better. Um, and I guess I can give some very, very quick examples. One area where the rule is subjective is how quiz masters rule on challenges. Um, they just, well, to a large part, right? They still have to apply the rule book, which is objective in some cases. Um, but they're deciding based off of a whole breadth of information what they think is the best ruling and there's a lot of subjectivity there and we probably we probably would be hard pressed to make that sort of thing objective in a way that we would that would be good for everybody on the flip side objective rule is word perfect for finish the verse and quote questions quizzer has to do them word perfect they need a full rotation i guess there is a little subjectivity around what is a small enough error where you can fix it without needing to complete a full rotation. But for the most part, there's a lot of objectivity there. But recently I was watching some World Cup and chatting with a few coworkers about, I don't recall what game it was, but there was an offsides call. And in today's technological world, 
they can pause the game, they can go to video replay, and they can freeze the video at a specific spot, and they can see if the player was offsides or not. And offsides, I didn't know if this was the case because I'm not a very ardent soccer fan. I'm barely a soccer fan. But I went into the rules to see how offsides was defined, and I think it is defined completely objectively. Any part of the offensive player's body, excluding their arms, and maybe excluding their head, I can't remember, but um, any part of their body being beyond any part of the defender's body constitutes offsides. And so in these freeze frames of the video, they can see if the smallest bit of your elbow or your knee or your shoulder is beyond any part of the defensive player. And of course, these are human bodies, right? So they're not like a perfect two by four edge or something, right? So it's like they're both in motion, but it, but at this very single point in time, it's a freeze frame where they're frozen and you can see, oh, the player was offsides by the objectively written rule. Now, the rule was written because it wanted to prevent a very specific kind of offensive strategy um, called cherry picking. And you can easily point out situations where the app, the correct application of the objectively written rule um, was not – I don't know how to say this. Like in actuality, you didn't want it applied because there was no – the offensive player gained no advantage um, by them actually being offside by the letter of the law. But if you then say, well, let's let the officials, you know, they have to apply this objective rule, but they can say um, there's some reasonableness standard or lack of advantage gained standard where they can kind of overrule the objective definition. Well, there might be some cases where you're okay with that, but I think very quickly you can see how it's just up to the whim of the official and it's not going to be consistent. And that is not, doesn't, is not what an outcome that people would like. And I think the main point I'm trying to make is for any objectively written rule where everyone agrees on the application of it, if you are one tiny bit on either side of that rule, it will kind of feel ridiculous, right? Like in a soccer example, he was offsides by, a hundredth of an inch of his elbow, or maybe he was on sides by a hundred, a hundredth of an inch of the defender's elbow. And really neither of those scenarios are ones where you would want to make, make a decision off of, but because it's objectively written, we can make a, a correct decision off of it. And it does feel ridiculous, but often when it feels ridiculous, it's because you're not considering how bad it would be to not have this ridiculousness exist, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And it just it exists in everything. I mean, in in track and field, they they shoot a sound. It's they don't shoot a physical gun anymore, but they make a sound like a gunshot, and then the runners can take off. Well, they've decided there's a a threshold. Um, if based on I don't know if they did they probably did research on human reaction time based off of sound. But if within a thousandth of a second or a hundredth of a second, I think it's a hundredth of a second after the sound goes off, if it's within, if it's under a hundredth of a second that the track and field athlete leaves the, the marker, um, then they will be disqualified. <laughs> well, um, one player left, one athlete 
left one like it was either one thousandth or one ten thousandth of a second um, quicker than the threshold and was disqualified because of it because their research had deemed that that threshold shows the actual reaction time of a, of a human being. And so you can see like, oh my gosh, like we're going to disqualify someone in the world championships of track and field for one one thousandth of a second. But they that's probably better than picking some subjective definition of what is leaving too fast. In this case, they picked an objective definition. They had to pick some um, time interval, um, which admittedly that time interval could be good or it could be bad. But in this case – we we have the technology that we can say you are one one thousandth of a second um, in error of the rules, and we just kind of, that's kind of what you accept um, when you are writing a an objective rule, knowing that it can occur, but probably won't occur very often, and won't occur very often often enough to make you not want to write that objective rule. Right. Well, and I mean. The great example here, like like flipping over to like football. So, well, okay, from what fo- one football to the other football. So going from, say, soccer to the NFL, right? Uh, the counterexample in the NFL is all the subjective rules that infuriate, it seems, everybody, um, right? So like mm-hmm. pass interference, roughing the passer, intentional grounding. Uh, like I still to this day, I mean, granted, I'm not. I, uh, this is kind of a ridiculous thing for me to say. I'm I'm super not an NFL mass like I'm not a super f- U.S. football fanatic at all. In fact, I barely know what's going on most of the time. Uh, but it seems to me like I'm perpetually confused by pass interference. Like it just doesn't. I don't understand where the line. Where where is the line? There isn't there isn't one right. Um, and yeah, it's just and. To throw another wrench into it, Griffin, there is something called defensive holding, which is a lesser penalty than defensive pass interference. And sometimes you might get one called and you might get the other one called. And I am probably making myself look stupid because there's probably a better definition of it based off of how far you are from the line of scrimmage and whether the ball has left the quarterback's hand or not. But those are, you know, that's another subjectively subjective layer to the defensive pass interference rule. Right. Well, any other thoughts on this? No, I just thought it was useful to I always find it interesting to talk about objective versus subjective rules because I don't think there's any universal truth about one always being better. Uh, But the more examples that you've had to deal with, I think you're better able to make the call of do I want this to be objective and do I want this to be subjective? I know that writing rules for a rule book, you think that objective make th- makes things better, like always, but it often creates loopholes that you at the edges of your objective rule that you never dreamed of when you were writing the objective rule. And that is often a kind of hidden downside of an objective rule. But it's only really a downside if the subjective rule is consistently applied in a way that we all like, which is also not something that you're apt to get. See, and I, I'm going to push back a little bit on, on your description there because like, and you knew that I would, right? I mean, I'm, I'm totally filling the role of Griffin here. <laughs> like, I would, I would argue any loophole that exists in an objective rule set exists in a subjective rule set, except it's blurry, 
right? It's it's still there. It's just that it's not necessarily identified and it's only sometimes exploitable based on the humans who happen to be there at any given time, right? Um, and so like the frustrating thing about the sub subjectivity is you may or may not have a loophole, uh, but the loophole is probably there anyway, right? Like, like it's either there or it's not. And if it's there, it's the subjectivity doesn't make the rule like better. It just makes it, 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 it just makes it worse, right? Because you still, you still have the loophole that may or may not be exploitable or may not, may or may not be covered over and it's unfair. It's inconsistent, right? At least with the, the, the objective rule, the loophole may exist, but you know about it and it's fair and it's, it's equitable, right? Um, ultimately, I think all that subjective rules do is let you essentially blur over problems in the rules. Um, and I'm not suggesting that an objective rule creation is easy. In fact, it's actually really hard because you're having to actually define things that you can kind of just hand wave away in a subjective universe, right? Right. And like, yeah, I agree with what you're saying, but I think lots of potential existed for... Um, like, if the rules had been written objectively, people could have exploited it, and good officials would have had n no way to stop it. Um, but, like, when I quizzed, there was lots of subjective rules, and for the most part, you and Tony and Jason and, and, and um, Andrew um, applied it well, right? <laughs> and so I think it kind of shows that if there is some kind of official, then it probably is better. Um, I, I think... I wouldn't go as far to say like just because it's potentially unknown, then it makes it like how it's going to be applied that it makes it automatically worse. No, no, it just makes it unreliable, right? So like if you happen to have a subjective set of rules and then you get a bunch of um, high level QMs together and they all agree, we will interpret this subjective rule to mean this objectively, right? then, okay, well, what have you, what have you done? You've solved the subjective problem by actually making it objective. You've, but the, but you've done that via tribal rather than like explicitly in writing in the rule book, right? Now the outcome is something that is consistent and it's fair. It's just not necessarily fully known by everybody because it's not codified in the rules. Sure. Um, which I don't like that I'm agreeing because I feel like I'm admitting to something I don't want to admit to um, because I, I think a rule <laughs> not being codified is one of the worst things that can happen. Um, I agree. Yeah. Because I mean, is a group of really good quiz masters applying a subjective rule almost always consistently a form of a non-codified rule? That feels like a stretch to me. <laughs> no, but of but 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 definitionally it is right. So if you've got a rule that in a rule book that is subjective that can be interpreted a, in more than one objective way, right? You th it's then up to the official to interpret that and enforce it in and and bring it about in 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 one of the you know n number of ways that it could be rendered right objectively, right? So. If you don't have collaboration of the quiz masters, and let's say they come from different cultures, those quiz masters might render the rule 
in different ways. And good quiz masters will be like, we don't like that. We want there to be consistency across the rooms of a meet. So let's get together and figure out how we're going to collapse the superposition of the subjective rule. And when you collapse the superposition of the subjective rule, you get an objective rule, right? Now, the objective rule is one of the possible positions of the subjective rule, right? Um, so you're not necessarily inventing a rule, but what you're doing is you're collapsing the non-other conditions of the subjective rule. So essentially what you're doing is you are adding a rule to the rule book that is not actually codified in the rule book. Hmm. I want to say you de facto are. And is that different from intentionally not codifying? <laughs> you're de facto doing it, right? Certainly, right? Um, then, but intentionality is sort of irrelevant. Like ultimately, whether you intend, like like ultimately when the QMs are getting together and collapsing the superposition of the subjective rule into an objective rule, they are creating an objective rule even if they don't mean to because they're they're wanting to say, and this this used to happen like all the time at internationals, right? It would be like the quiz masters or the officials would get together just prior to the coaches meeting and collapse various superpositions and then share those discussions, those outcomes with the, with the coaches. Right. Um, and this was one of the things that, you know, you and I have talked about this. We hated that because we were like, okay, but what if they end up collapsing the superposition to a, a thing that is different than what your quizzers had been training toward, had been studying toward or, or practicing toward? Like, that's lame. And you only find out about it the, the night before the, the quizzing starts. That's not cool. Um, but I mean, ultimately, that's what they're doing is they're collapsing. The, the, a subjective rule allows for at least one, but usually more than one interpretation. And by making it objective, you're collapsing that from the many to the one, and therefore you're adding it, whether that is codified in the rule book or is simply stated the night before quizzing starts. Sure. I mean, I think the difference that I would draw there is that was a bunch of people knowing that there was large fragmentation on an extremely subjective written rule, deciding the night before a comp competition we're going to pick one of the fragments. Sure. Whereas I think, I think that's different than a bunch of people trying, like actually trying to interpret a subjectively written rule the best that they can and not like the way that they want it to be interpreted. Aren't those two things the same thing though? I mean, essentially what you're doing is you're, you're, you're coming together the night before a quiz meet and you are, a, you're, you're, you've got a subjective rule that everybody has, has been operating under and different people are saying, well, we interpreted that to mean this. And somebody else will say, well, actually, we interpret that to mean this other thing, right? And well, those the two things are mutually exclusive. Which one are we going to do? How are we going to how are we going to resolve that to have only one thing, right? And, you know, the, the intentionality of, of doing that, whether that's intentional, explicit, or it's unintentional, but it's done anyway, because we're like, well, wait a minute, how do you interpret X? How do you rule on this scenario? That's another way of, of informally collapsing the superposition, right? Sure. But I think there's a difference between choosing how to interpret something that is subjective because you think it's the best interpretation um, and interpreting it because it's the interpretation that you want to exist. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, the outcome is still the same, right? Um, no, I mean, 
there are certain qualities of the outcomes that are the same, but it is different in that if you are just, if, if the thing that you just want to be true, um, <laughs> is not very strongly, um, either believed, inferred, implied by the subjectively written rule, then you are v- like very much changing the goalposts on people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. so, so for example, like if, if there's an objective rule, imagine the objective rule as a pen dot on paper with, um, very wet ink and, and it's a pen dot, but somebody put a little bit of extra ink on it. So it's like a little ink bubble that's on the page. Right. And it's not dry. That's the objective rule. And the subjective is somebody takes their thumbprint and goes, you know, squishes it and kind of fuzzes it up. Right. So it's like, okay, so you've got this sort of spectrum of possibilities and there are areas near the center that are, that are, you know, way more black, way more obvious, not obviously, but way more closer to what it, what the original objective rule would have been. And then you've got these edge cases and then way out to the edges, you've got this sort of faded, like, well, okay, technically this is ink, but this is clearly like pushing the boundaries of, of, you know, the objective, uh, uh, center, uh, spot, right. In the scenario that you're talking about, the cause, the arrow of time is inverted, right? You're actually starting from the, not the ink blot, but you're starting from the smudge and there's the center of the smudge where there's a several different possibilities where they're all pretty closely, you know, very well black. And it, you, you could put your finger on or a, put a pinprick on any one of those and be, you know, considered reasonable. But then there's the edges of the smudge, which are clearly faded a bit. Um, but technically they are part of the smudge. And so you could say like, well, yeah, if I end up putting a pin in one of the, into one of these edge areas, that's probably less justifiable, justifiable of an interpretation than putting the pin in the center. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still collapsing the, the smudge into a point, right? Sure. Theoretically, at the end of the day, it's the exact same thing. It's just that you are knowingly changing the goalposts on more people yeah, than fair, you are by fair. picking something in the center, which to me, like those are different things. Even if the theory behind and the end implication in theory is the exact same. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can buy that. I can buy that. Um, so yeah, I can, I can, I can see what you're, you're saying. Like, and I think that it does show that you do want things codified as much as possible because I can, I can sit here and say, well, um, it's on a group of officials or a program to like recognize if something is so subjective that it has a wider range of possible or current interpretations, not, not even possible, just like existing, um, that that is in greater need of something more objective. <laughs> um, and your impact of deciding something as a group of officials without codifying it is greater than if it's something that, well, you know, 90% of us believe one way and 10% of us are a little bit inconsistent on the rest. The impact of the group of officials choosing to do the 90% thing as a group has less of an impact, right? By not codifying it. Right, right. But that's not an argument to not codify things. It's Mm. just saying that there's less of an impact of not codifying it in that scenario. Right. Well, and I mean, one of the, I think it's a, I think I obviously I've been very clear about my, you know, pro objective, anti subjective, you know, stance. You can put it on, you can put it on my quizzing gravestone, right? Like, like here lies the guy who hated all things subjective. Um, But one of the, well, actually 
I hate to I hate to use the word advantage, but a good thing trying to steel man the the other side here, right? A good reason to have a subjective rule is that it's a whole lot easier to write, right? Um, it's a whole lot easier to just write a sentence that's fairly vague, but you sort of expect everybody to sort of understand and, and hand wave it away. And maybe you can, you can say, well, you don't understand it fully until you quiz master for a while. And then you understand it based on, you know, people telling you, uh, you're not quite interpreting that quite right. And like, okay, fair. Like, like, but the argument ultimately is like, yeah, subjective rules are easier to write than objective rules. Like by and large, I would say, yeah, that's very true. That's not just very true. I think it's probably almost always true. Um, but, uh, that, so yeah, writing objective rules is much harder. It takes a lot more time investment and thought investment because you can also end up with all kinds of unintended consequences if you don't invest the time. But what's great about it is once you actually invest the time in codifying objective rules, you don't have to reinvest the time anymore, right? It's already been invested. With a subjective rule, every time you come up with a new official or you plant a new program or you try to, you know, branch or grow or put programs together that have been operating separately for a while, let's say in, a, in some sort of combined meet and internationals meet, something like that, you're always having to collapse the superposition. You're always having to reinvest. So even though the subjective, the subjective rule set is essentially like technical debt, right? You're, you're that, that, that you're never paying off, right? It, it's technical debt that you're always having to pay a little bit to, to finance every time that you have a quiz meet. So, um, I was just about to ask you verbatim, would you say that writing subjective rules is a form of technical debt? Um, but you have kind of answered that one, headed it off at the pass. <laughs> I felt a tremor in the force. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a term from software development where um, the current decision that you are making might make things easier um, in the short-ish term, but it is adding an amount of debt in the longer term um, that you will or will not have to pay off, but it, it will have some sort of a cost, as all debts do. Yep. Yeah, there's financing on it. And... Yep, indeed. Well, let's uh, let's jump into... Our next topic, uh, so we want to basically kind of riff a little bit on this idea. We're going to brainstorm ideas for engaging the audience. And so I want to make that term audience really, really big. So there's audience in terms of people who are in the room, spectators, uh, people who are visiting a quiz meet, prospective quizzers, prospective parents of quizzers, uh, you know, people from other organizations who are kind of like, hmm, I've heard about this quizzing thing. What is it about? And, and they want to to see it for themselves, that kind of thing. But I also want to like expand even further that definition and say, like, imagine a world of the future, hopefully not too distant future, uh, hint, hint, where quizzing is broadcast and viewed by the general population in some form, right? So that can be, a you know, something as simple as a YouTube stream all the way to, hey, guess what? It's actually on ESPN or something like that on the other end of the spectrum, but somewhere where the general population is actually viewing quizzing, 
how do you make this thing that we call quizzing engaging to the audience? And why would we even care? Like, let's, let's start with that. Why would we care about making quizzing engaging for people who are viewing it? Obviously, we want to make quizzing engaging and exciting and awesome and epic and all the words for quizzers. And that that that's very important. But why, why should we care about the audience, spectators, viewers? I think we sometimes, in fact, maybe frequently overlook that uh, or put it as such a secondary concern. And as a result, we make our lives in quizzing evangelism that much more difficult, right? If we make quizzing accessible to a non-quizzed or an unquizzed viewer, I think evangelism becomes a whole lot easier. So in this sort of imaginary future world, what are some things that we could do that would make the audience feel more engaged? To me, the single biggest thing is um, basically taking a um, a page out of Poker's book and letting the audience in on um, both the correct answer and what the implications are. So I am I am a terrible poker player and a very, very casual fan. But I can tell you that if watching poker on TV or the internet did not have cameras that showed the cards that the poker players were holding, as well as their current probability of winning the hand, I wouldn't I wouldn't watch another second. Because it doesn't make sense to me, right? If I see that someone has jack four uns- unsuited and someone else has seven six suited, I don't know, like, do they both have a 50% chance of winning? Does one person have a 70%? And, but, but once I know the actual probabilities, it adds such color when a bet happens. And you can say, like, oh, because of the probabilities that are shown to me and only because I know them, I know that this person is bluffing. Um, I wouldn't know that otherwise. And I think similarly, if in quizzing you saw the answer and you could have a sense for um, as the person's 30 seconds ran down or however long they have, are they close or not? Are they getting closer? Um, it's, it's just like a football game, right, where you're getting towards the end zone and the game clock is going down. You know like the gravity of a situation because you have those pieces of information. Um, and unless you are pretty familiar with quizzing, you don't know that, right? But you can – if you see on the screen, you know, 11 words in the answer and they're all in red and as the quizzer answers, they turn green and there's a big old timer ticking down to zero, you don't have to know anything about quizzing and you immediately grasp at least the gravity of this single question, right? Um, what this one competitor is doing. And then you can add in stuff like running score. Um, you could show for each quizzer if they were to get one right, how many points they would get, right? If there's quiz outs without error or if there's third, fourth, fifth person bonuses that are different, you know, or additive or something. Um, that would be really, really interesting. Um, I think, I think to the, to the viewer. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, the the very first thing that I think of in terms of engaging the audience is like, make the rules, it's hard to describe this, simpler, but with depth um, is probably how I would describe it. So that doesn't mean simple in the sense of like, everything is a quote question, there's no variety, and you have to get it verbatim or else, right? Like, like, because that would be kind of boring on one on one hand, but at least it would be really, really simple, right? And it's like, okay, sure, that's simple, but that's not simple with depth. And it's hard to really describe what this is. So let's go back to um, USC and football, right? So 
in in USC and football, uh, NFL football, right? There's all these like depth of esoteric words, you know, pass interference, roughing the passer, int- intentional grounding. Yeah, we were talking about all this subjective stuff there, but there's a whole bunch of other like more objective rules as well. And there's a significant amount of, of depth to them. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, ball here must go over there, right? <laughs> like get this ball over there. And one team is on one side of the ball and the other team's on the other side of the ball. And after you watch a couple of plays, you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, they can pass it or they can run it um, or they can kick it, I guess, at, you know, fourth down or something like that, right? So like you can start putting the pieces together pretty quickly around like, I don't really understand all these rules, but I get what's going on. And like when they pass when they have an explosive play and the quarterback throws, you know, uh, for 50 yards or some, something ridiculous and it's caught, then it's like, okay, the crowd went wild. And I get why the crowd went wild because like, like it, it's a huge progress of making the ball go from there to there, you know, that kind of thing. And so similarly, like in quizzing, um, I, w- I would love to be able to see rules strated in such a way that like, okay, there's complexity and depth to each of the rules, but at a simple level, you can basically say like, okay, there's a bunch of different question types, but you ultimately have to memorize, answer, here's here and, and here's how it's judged and you get points, right? And those points change based on a you know variety of different things. And then, per, and then the sort of the second thing down is like, I don't know how to practically do this, but I'd love to be able to have a screen or a, you know, a projection of some kind viewable by non-competitors in the room that actually has the Quizmaster screen on it, right? So like the Quizmaster sees the reference material, sees the question, the answer, sees the type, sees the score, you know, all these kind of stuff. And I'd love to be able to just provide that to everybody who isn't a quizzer or a coach, right? Well, and, and actually, let me rephrase a quizzer or a coach in the current quiz, right? So like if you're a quizzer or a coach not, you know, participating in the current quiz, like absolutely have access to it, like view it, right? I'd love to be able to see that. I just don't know, like practically, how would we do that? Like buy a big screen TV and hang it on the back of the chair of the quiz master or something? Like, I don't know. I mean, now, I mean, of course, I'm I'm diving into like practical, how would we do that practically? But if we're talking about a broadcast... Uh, we can absolutely do that, um, right? It's just, you know, uh, stats overlays and, and whatnot, right? Right. And in a world where a coach has no ability to influence an outcome, which we've talked about rules-wise, then there's really no downside to giving a coach access to it either, a current coach. Yeah, that's true. And then, the, then of course, this gets us a little bit off the topic, but, I mean, we're riffing here, which is a good thing. Um, do we want a world, do we want a future world where coaches have less influence or more influence or the same level of influence? Right. Um, you know, cause we're talking about these rules for a three IOC, that kind of stuff. Do we want a universe where a coach really can't do anything other than cheer their team, you know, and they're more of a chaperone than a coach. Or do we want a coach to actually be able to have some level of influence? Now, granted, I think we should have sort of a soccer level of influence where it's like, you know, the vast majority of things are happening on the pitch, right? Uh, the, the, the the coach doesn't really do that much during the game. Um, 
other than maybe calling some strategies and that kind of stuff. But ultimately, it's it's up to the players to actually perform and do things. The, the coach can't go out there and, and perform a play or something like that, right? I, I don't want to get into that world. But like, are there, do we want to alter the needle as ter- in terms of what coaches can do to influence the outcome? Um, my opinion is I want coaches to have zero ability to directly influence the competition. Their only ability to influence the competition should be through interaction with their own quizzers, right? So if a coach knows the material and the rule book and all this, they can um, help coach up and inform their own quizzers. But that their better knowledge in those areas doesn't give them an ability to directly um, impact the competition. Give me an example. Like a, what's what's the, the least we- different example of something where – uh, quiz, a, a coach could materially impact the competition. Like, what What do you mean? So back in 2013, I protested without there first being an over an overruled challenge um, because it wasn't required for me to protest. And so because I knew the rule book and the material, I could protest in that manner in a way that a coach that knew the rule book and the material less, well, couldn't. Yeah, but wouldn't that be considered a good thing? Because ultimately, what's what's your what is the aim of the protest that you were doing? The aim of your protest was to ensure accuracy of rulings, and like ultimately, we want the most accurate rulings possible. I mean, frankly, I don't I don't trust me and the general body of coaches to to do that in an always good manner. Well, sure. I mean, I granted, I, there's definitely going to be coaches who are going to do that poorly, but there's also quizzes who are going to do that poorly. Uh, we don't have a, we don't have a criteria for qualifications to be a, a captain. But I think we also like, I don't know if this is going to get me in trouble. We like, we expect less of quizzers, right? Like, like as an official, like I absolutely got challenges that were complete crap um, and not given in a very good way and like just trying to squeak out points for their own team when they were up by 140, you know what I mean? Like, sure. And, um, but I don't, I don't think it's on me as the quiz master, at least during the, the flow of the quiz comp, like a specific quiz to, um, hold a quizzer accountable for that. But I would absolutely want to hold any adult accountable for that kind of stuff. And so if we just like don't give them the ability to, I don't care if some of the time it results in a better ruling. Sure. Well, I mean, I think there's a certain level of professionalism and maturity and sportsmanship that we expect of coaches that we would like to see and usually see in the quizzers also. But if a quizzer inadvertently is a little bit on the fringe of professionalism, we most of the time let that slide because we say like, well, okay, yes, ideally we would like everybody to be professional and sportsmanlike, but when they're not most of the time, I mean, unless it becomes egregious, most of the time we're like, we have grace because they're like, these are kids, you know, they're, they're, you know, some of them are high school and, and should know better, but some of them are younger and may not have that level of maturity and like, okay, fine. We let that go. But if a coach, like a parent coach, you know, who acts really unprofessionally or um, uh, disrespectfully, right, to an official, uh, that's something that's, you know, like like the first time it happens, you're kind of like, wow, that's weird. And then the second time it happens, you're like, now I'm going to, we're going to have words. So like, I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, I, I 
obviously I'm not going to mention the person. Um, I don't want to embarrass them, but I was at a, um, a Great West uh, in recent memory. And there was a parent coach who was there who did something that was, um, was it was uh, it wasn't an appropriate thing for the coach to do. Um, she essentially communicated with her team after I had called the question in such a way as to encourage them to try to get the question right. Um, now she did it vocally. There were actual words said. There was not any information passed in the in the instruction but it was it was a very clear instruction of like you guys should jump now or that that kind of thing i forget exactly what it was and they ended up jumping they ended up getting the question correct and i ultimately count it was a bonus so i ultimately counted it correct but then after i counted it correct i i just warned the room like hey when i call the question there needs to be silence until either the time goes off or or there's a ruling or whatever that kind of thing there 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 can't be communication going on and the coach responded to me in an extremely um extremely disrespectful way um very um unsportsmanlike and i just i didn't say anything at the time i just i just was like just let's go on to the next question, that kind of thing. But then after the quiz was over, both of my officials, my answer judge and my um, scorekeeper were, were like, did you hear what she said? Like, that's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I, I did hear it, but I didn't want to make a big deal of it in the moment. But if she had done that sort of thing a second time, then yeah, I think <laughs> that, that would have been a, 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 some uncomfortable moments would have, would have transpired there. So, I actually want to take us in a different direction because this conversation has made me realize a few things, which is um, this isn't about any notion of professionalism or respect for me um, or acceptable or not acceptable level of um, decorum. Because I think in a lot of cases in our world today, people will call something disrespectful when they just don't like being called out that they're incorrect. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, that that happens a lot. And so I don't want quizmasters to feel like they – just because someone thinks that they did something incorrect means that that person is being disrespectful because that's not the, not going to be the case always, right? I think my main belief here is that the coaches are not competitors. And so while I want rulings to be as correct and consistent as possible, I would rather have some not be that way if it means that coaches are not in any way a competitor. Interesting. Would you consider a coach of an NFL team to be a competitor? No, they're not. They can't go on the field. No, they, they can't, can't go on the field, but they can throw the challenge flag. Sure. And I'm fine with coaches protesting things that um, a quizmaster got wrong, like um, didn't notice a light was off or didn't notice that the timer ran out. But I don't want a coach um, protesting on their opinion of um, the quiz master's ruling on did a quizzer say enough to count them out, out of context. Hmm. Okay. Fair enough. And I've, I mean, f- yeah, for me, the, the whole context thing gets solved by having that be objective. Um, I mean, ultimately then whether the coach, you know, uh, uh, points it out or not, it's a, like, to me, to me, whether the coach points out an objective failure to follow a rule or a quizzer points out an objective failure to follow a rule or a spectator just randomly says, Hey, X happened and Y should have happened instead. Um, any of those things can be for me, trigger points to go, 
you know, into reflection mode and say, wait a minute, is there validity this, to this comment? Oh, interesting. There is. Okay. What do I need to do about it? And then fix it. Right. So like, like as a hypothetical, if I do something wrong as a quiz master, a quizzer, the, 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 the scope of what should happen is a quizzer will, a captain will, will challenge. Right. But what would happen if the captain for, I, it's, I can't even imagine, but, but let's say the captain subbed out and then went to the bathroom or something like that. And they're not there and there isn't a co-captain. I don't know the scenario, maybe both the captain and the co-captain left for some reason. And somebody else decided to challenge. Would I ignore the challenge because it came from a quizzer who wasn't the captain or co-captain? Of course not. Right. Um, if the, both the captain and the co-captain were there and a third quizzer challenged, uh, well, okay, technically, I don't think I'm supposed to, you know, listen to their challenge. But at the same time, like putting, parking that scenario aside for the moment, if there was some random spectator in the back of the room who just totally inappropriately, but nevertheless, correctly yelled out X happened, that's in contravention to the rules. Y should be the thing that happened. And I become aware of that, like... To me, I it would be irresponsible of me not to go back and fix the situation, right? Um, I would agree with that. But I think like it's hard to draw the line there because I would say that once you become aware of it, you shouldn't ignore it just because of where it came from. Right. Um, but at the same time, like professional golf has had issues with people at home watching golf happen. Um, do their own replay, slow something down and then call the PGA office and it ends up in a golfer being disqualified like eight hours later. Oof. And, and the spectator was a hundred percent correct, right? By like an objectively written rule. But people are like, is this like, we, we want the rules to be followed and applied correctly by both players self calling penalties and by all the existing officials on the course. And the fact that it is being broadcast live and there are officials watching it live. Right. But this feels super bad that just some dude on his couch can call in and someone gets disqualified later. Now the timing may be the main issue. Right. And not, um, but I think that's also a scenario where we just like, if, if we have a bunch of people watching quiz meets that can then point out a rules infraction that results in a change an hour later, you know, like that's not a scenario that we want, even though, even if it ends up in being the correct ruling. Yeah. But again, I think that's the time issue, right? Like, like I completely agree. Once you've started the next question, like, I think the previous question is, is, is done. Like, like, I think like it's, it's the, you know, when you, when you complete a quiz and you're two or three quizzes in down the, the, the schedule and somebody points out, you know, Hey, question 16 of quiz three, and now you're on quiz eight, but question 16 of quiz three was ruled incorrectly. You're like shrug. You're right. I can't do anything about it now. Right. Like, like, like the last thing you want to do is go back in time and change 16 around and like, or, and then make, you know, possibly redo the last set of questions from, from quiz three or something like that. Like at that point you're like, yeah, it's lame. It's a mistake. It shouldn't have been done differently. What can we do to prevent that from happening in the future? Right. Um, and that can happen whether, you know, it's a coach, a, a, a captain, 
anybody, you know, bringing it to the attention of the official after the fact. It's just sort of like the the time window has elapsed, you know, kind of stuff. But in the moment, right? Um, so if it just happened to be, I, I, I forgive my golf awareness, but let's say it's some guy on his couch, you know, um, half the world away watching uh, somebody putt. And he picks up the phone and he just happens to have the PGA you know, phone number, <laughs> right? And, and let's say he knows Bob, who's a controller at, in the PGA somewhere. And he calls up Bob and he says, hey, Bob, did you notice his toe touched the, the, the ball or something like that? And Bob's like, I didn't see that. And before the guy takes the next swing, um, Bob is able to get that down, that information down to one of the officials. And then the officials calls a halt to the proceedings and takes a look at the tape you're like well okay great we 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 missed something we were notified that we missed something we noticed it in time to be able to make a corrective action in the moment before the time window passed like to me the origin of that notification is is just not relevant like in fact i would i would be i would be glad that you know stan uh on his couch half a world away called bob right Right, right. And I think you're right that the timing is the issue. If the PGA Tour just said, hey, we're happy if anyone calls us, but if it's one shot or one hole later, it's too late. You know, whatever the, that decision is, I think, then everyone's pretty fine with it. And it reminds me of, like in PNW, we used to have coaches be required to initial the score sheet. And once they had done so, it doesn't matter if the scorekeeper made an error, nothing changes. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, well, when I started running the district, I was like, well, if the scorekeeper made an error on an individual statistic, we can fix that after the fact, and it affects nothing else. Um, it doesn't matter if the team score was affected because we can't fix that later. Right. Uh, we've moved on. And so I was just like, it doesn't matter. Like, no one has to initial a score sheet. You're free to please check it. <laughs> I would love it if you do. But if you don't and we find an error that the scorekeeper made later – we're going to fix it to give the individual their correct amount of points. Right. But we can't do anything about the team. Right. Well, um, last idea that we haven't talked about here uh, in terms of engaging the audience, spectators, viewers, whatever we want to call it, is commentators, um, which, of course, you know, I'm in ima- I'm imagining a fictional future world, maybe hopefully not too fictional and hopefully not too future where quizzing is broadcast and we have commentators who actually know quizzing and provide live or tape delayed or whatever commentary to me, that seems kind of cool. Like if we could, if we could pull that off, because number one, it makes it interesting. It explains what's going on in any particular moment. And I also love the, the notion of like, while deliberation is happening on a particular uh, response to a query, you can have a commentator say, well, okay, here's what they might be thinking of. And, you know, let's go to, the rules, <laughs> let's, let's, let's call up Scott in Chicago and have him tell us the truth. You know, what does he think about this particular, like they do in the NFL? Like there's always that guy who's remote watching all the games simultaneously. Who's the rules expert. Uh, that seems way cool and a great way to engage the audience because it's a conversation. I mean, granted it's not a conversation. It's a, it's a broadcast. So it's one, I guess it's a one directional conversation, between the commentators and the audience that is a something that the audience is involved in that other people are not involved in. Um, that just seems interesting and cool. That does seem really cool. If you think back to my example of poker, right? 
the audience, if they know why something's important, then they view it in a completely different light and can be pretty engaged with what's going on. This is just another way to do that. If I can say, hey, as a commentator, Quizzer Jane is their quote and finish the verse specialist and has been dominant this year, but over the last two quizzes has actually made a lot of errors on that type. And in this quiz, her team is behind and we know from the question type distribution requirements that there are three quotes and finishes coming up. Like, let's see how, like, if she wins those jumps and how she does. Mm-hmm. Like, that's immediately way more interesting for the for someone watching, um, whether they know Jane or not, right? Right. Um, and I think you could do that in so many different ways, talking about the types that are left, the types that are gone, uh, which which quizzers that are in the quiz have done well. Oh, you know, in a future world, we may not have subs, but like this team made this sub and here's why I think they did that. Yeah, very. All right, well, let's move into our last topic here. Um, this kind of goes back to something from a couple of episodes ago. Uh, our our, our uh, Luke from CMD, a frequent uh, emailer to the... Uh, show and we love getting emails from him because he puts a lot of thought uh, and consideration into his emails. But uh, he brought up uh, regarding appeal aperture and 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 related things to thereof. He gave us kind of three paragraphs to chew on, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna quote each one, and then Scott would love to hear your thoughts on each of these uh, blocks of content from Luke. So the first one is as follows. I think the main selling point of Bible quizzing is exactly what was mentioned here uh, relating to the episode um, that we were talking about. Benevolently tricking quizzers into memorizing uh, material results in a more literate, involved congregation. Also, when children get involved, the adults often aren't too far off because they care about their children. I was re- I was recently listening to a man who worked for World Serve in Cuba, and he was talking about how the children's programs in Cuba are largely successful in bringing adults to the church, which makes sense. In Cuba, they also have a massively successful quizzing program that involves several hundred quizzers, including adult quizzers. Uh, Scott, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't know if I have any exotic thoughts. I mean, I think it's, it's probably true that if you instill a child with an interest, it is more likely that their parent will adopt some amount of interest that they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. I don't know if that's, yeah. Oh, like when I showed interest in golf, my dad took up golf. Right. (laughs) But I don't know if that's a necessarily, yeah, I think it's just a true thing. Potentially. Yeah. I think there's certainly a bias toward it. I'll give you a counter example. My daughter is very, very, very into dance. Uh, she loves ballet. She's really, she's shockingly good at tap. Uh, she's, uh, she loves lyrical, uh, contemporary, uh, just loves dance and loves and, and signs up for all the dance things. And she, as a result has performances every so often that I am dragged to not kicking and screaming, but let's say not with the greatest amount of outward excitement, because for me, dance is I mean, I, I respect the art form and I respect the fact that like, and, and these dancers, some of them in the school, in the, in the studio that she's, she's part of, um, some of them are, are shockingly good. Like, 
like really, really talented. And, and certainly you can see the hours of investment that's gone into it and you can re respect the, the effort and the skill, uh, that's, that's demonstrated, but yeah, going and watching like a couple hours of dance is for, for me, you know, is not interesting. Like when my daughter comes out on stage, <laughs> I'm I'm glad to be there because I get to see my daughter and I get to applaud her work and and support her in that way. But there is no chance my level of interest in dance. Well, okay, there's no there's no chance my level of interest in dance is going to go higher than what it is right now. However, I will admit uh, somewhat begrudgingly that my interest in in dance has gone above what it would have been had she not been <laughs> involved in dance because prior to her involvement in dance my interest in dance was zero <laughs> so i guess i'm i guess i'm sort of arguing both sides on this yeah i think it's just true right you're gonna have more of an interest yeah all right so then second point from luke here uh cmd has zone meets as i mentioned earlier and it definitely gives us some time to organize for larger meets in the latter half of the quizzing season while holding quiz meets across the district so in this one i'm kind of hearkening back to pnw's days of of of, of yore of of larger days of yore where we used to do something similar. We had uh, district meets similar to what we do now, but we were large enough where we actually ran three different regions. Uh, and so some of the meets, so we, these days we have five meets a year that are sort of the standard run-of-the-mill regular district meets. Uh, we have a preseason meet scramble. We have a postseason meet uh, district championships. We also have, you know, the Great West meet and internationals, or in this case, um, IOC. Uh, but we the, that sort of regular season, they were five meets. It used to be that we would have two or even three of those five meets would be regional meets, not district meets, because we were large enough to be able to split up that way. Um, I think I think really we did it that way purely out of logistical reasons, just because there were so few churches that were large enough to be able to house the entire district. Um but in terms of just, you know, putting the logistics aside, Scott, from your perspective, do you see any appeal aperture variance between, say, five district meets versus some district meets and some regional meets, assuming regional meets could practically happen? I would imagine that almost everything about a regional meet would be less appealing. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Like it's. There's just less people, less competition, less like overall quizzing happening, less, I mean, less people, right? So less whatever social things happening as well, um, less of an ability to filter quizzers into their ability levels. I mean, I think it, the only upsides are logistics, right? Well, sort of. There's there's less going on in terms of less social because there's less people. Absolutely. Um, there's more quizzing, though, because you get to do more quizzing at a district or sorry, you get to do more quizzing as a, all other things being equal. You get to do more quizzing at a regional meet than you do at a district meet just because you have more slots available per team uh, at a, uh, in the schedule at a regional meet than you do at a district meet. Uh, the other factor is you have a better chance of getting further in toward finals, if not placing in finals than you do 
uh, at a um, uh, at, at a district meet. So let's say you have uh, let's say you have three regional meets, right? Uh, and let's say they're roughly equal size. Of course, they weren't. But let's just say let's pretend they were roughly equal of size. At a regional meet, two thirds of the district isn't there, which means you have a much better chance of making finals. Uh, in that sort of universe, whereas at a district meet, it would be much more difficult to make finals. Yeah, but I think anyone that would that would care a lot about making finals would know that it's because there's fewer good teams there. It's sure. easier. But, but sure, but the excitement level, like there is something about like, hey, I'm actually in finals. Granted, it's at a regional, not a district, so it means something different. But I still am in finals and we got second place, right? Or something like, like it's something it's like you get to walk away with a trophy, whereas uh, at a district level, it's like, oh, we, we got fifth place, which is great. I'm happy, right? I didn't get to I didn't get to participate in finals. I didn't get to walk away with a trophy, right? Sure. And I think I'm just the dead wrong person to ask about this. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. Because um, I only like I I cared more about being first than about getting a 90 mm, yeah. right because i wanted to know not that i i scored a certain amount but that i scored better than everybody else and if the everybody else was not everybody <laughs> because some people weren't there then it's less rewarding yeah yeah you and my daughter see quizzing very similarly <laughs> it's it's kind of amusing um i mean yeah. I was part of a few regional meets and you would absolutely look at, well, not you, I would absolutely look at the different regions and try to see like, where are like how equal or not equal are these? Right. Mm, right. <laughs> but even though from a district standpoint, they counted the exact same because you had to, um, they like, they will never be equal, right? <laughs> the amount that they are unequal will vary, but, um, no region or zone will be equal, and I think it's almost always chosen because of logistics, like CMD, because they're incredibly geographically far-flung. And actually, I will disagree with you that there's more quizzing, There's because I don't think there are more time slots, because I think number of rooms and officials get scaled. It gets scaled a little bit, but not a lot, right? So you would go from a district meet of, say, four rooms to a regional meet of three rooms, but you're cutting two thirds of the quizzers, right? So you you would cut going from district to regional, you would cut 25% um, of the quizzes, but you would cut 66% of the teams, right? Um, I mean, roughly speaking, right? So you actually would end up quizzing more. I mean, if the numbers that you threw out are correct, it it felt like it you quizzed the exact same amount. Yeah, yeah, fair. All right, so the last one here, the Ability Valley, quote unquote, uh, Scott outlined here, reminds me of activation energy for a chemical reaction. I think this analogy works well. Let quizzers equal the number of molecules, or let quizzers equal molecules and potential energy equal the investment they put into memorizing studying. Molecules have the potential to release a large, a large quantity of energy, but they need a small push in order to do it. The more molecules we have, the more likely one of them will reach activation energy. Often, once the first molecule reacts, it releases more energy that cascades across all the molecules, allowing them to release potential energy. Uh, you know, the first thing that, I, that that comes into my mind when I when I hear this, uh, like this feels like nuclear fission um 
to me. <laughs> like, like I'm seeing like uh, uranium two thirty five or something, and like, okay, where's the moderator? And I'm probably way over analyzing this comment. But uh, Scott, what are your non nuclear thoughts about this? Well, I, I could well, I know science terribly, so I'm probably a very poor person to comment on this. But I think the notion of chemical reactions needing some amount to kind of get them started, I think works well for a lot of things in, in life. If, if you're learning a new activity and you have no sense that you're getting better or you can see results, it's really hard to continue. But if you have a certain amount of results, then it gives you that push to keep going. And that's probably not the exact same um, realities as a chemical reaction, but I think it is similar. And so I think it's I think it's a very good analogy. Cool. Well, uh, and on that bombshell, we should probably wrap things up. I do want to remind everybody, uh, be like Luke. Uh, email us. Uh, email us your questions, comments, concerns, nagging doubts, fears, paranoia, uh, especially your disagreements. We very much want to hear your disagreements. Uh, but any kind of comments that you want to have, uh, throw us a line at iq at cbqz.org. You can follow us also on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Twizzing. Inside Quizzing, if I can talk correctly, which apparently I can't today. And you can also chat with us in near real time on the Bible quizzing Slack forum inside quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thank you to our listeners. And thanks to Luke for sending in such great emails. And thanks for co-hosting, Griffin. Griffin.